Hey everyone, I'm Masha Udensiba Brenner, and you're listening to Expert Opinions on Russia and Eurasia, a podcast from the Harriman Institute at Columbia University, hosted by Eurasianet.org. After a summer hiatus, I'm thrilled to welcome you back with a three-part series on offshore finance, money laundering, and the Trump Organization's real estate deals in the post-Soviet region. Our guests will be Harriman Director Alexander Cooley, Columbia School of Journalism Investigative Fellows Manuela Andrioni and Inti Pacheco, and last but not least, New Yorker staff writer Adam Davidson. In March 2017, Professors Alexander Cooley and John Heathershaw published Dictators Without Borders, Power and Money in Central Asia. The book challenges the popular assumption that Central Asia is an isolated region with little influence over global affairs, and argues that Central Asia's transnational presence is in fact sizable and should not be ignored. The catch is that this presence is often illicit, and therefore obscured by a web of foreign bank accounts, third-party brokers, and shell companies. These dynamics threaten global security, yet they're often enabled by Western actors who both wittingly and unwittingly partake in money laundering schemes and bribery, and who also provide corrupt Central Asian elites with access to institutions, status symbols, and legal protections that legitimize their actions and connect them to global power centers. In the words of the authors, the whole system of international law, universal human rights, and global governance has been undermined by secretive offshore jurisdictions, leaving researchers, journalists, and advocates to assess the extent of the damage. Since the book's publication, the Trump Organization's financial entanglements in the former Soviet region have drawn an unprecedented amount of attention to the intricate offshore networks of Central Asian elites. But when Dictators Without Borders first came out, two months after President Trump's inauguration, Alexander Cooley could not have imagined that these issues would garner so much interest beyond the world of academia. I had no idea. In fact, I had a a bit of the opposite uh, lament, which was after the U.S. presidential elections here and questions about whether the Trump administration was taking us into the realm of illiberalism, and questions of conflicts of interest and possible kleptocracy. I thought to myself, who's going to care about Central Asia? Then, as investigations into President Trump's real estate deals uncovered more and more links between Central Asian oligarchs and Trump properties, a lot of people started to care. And characters like the dissident Kazakh oligarch Mukhtar Abliyazov one of the four case studies in Cooley and Heathershaw's book, entered into the mainstream media narrative. I sat down with Alexander Cooley in his office to discuss his book in the context of these developments and to get a better sense of why luxury real estate is so conducive to money laundering operations. One of the fascinating things 
about luxury real estate is how little systemic uh, data or analytical pieces we have about it in the social sciences. Here's an industry that's worth hundreds of billions of dollars each year um, that is truly transnational and global, also tied to obtaining you know, citizenship or residence status, uh, and we know very little about it. You might be wondering about the connection between luxury real estate and residence status. So I'll take a moment to explain. You see, it's quite common for countries to offer pathways to citizenship in exchange for foreign investment. The U.S., for instance, has what's called the EB-5 Immigrant Investment Program. This allows foreigners to apply for a green card if they invest a minimum of $500,000 to a million dollars in a U.S. commercial enterprise that creates at least 10 permanent jobs. The program was established in 1990, but it really took off after the global financial crisis of 2008, when it became more difficult to secure loans from traditional lenders. Since then, investments have flown largely through luxury real estate channels. And actually, the Kushner family recently came under fire for attracting Chinese investors by highlighting their connections to the White House and promising green cards. Meanwhile, oligarchs from Central Asia and other regions have been legitimizing their often murky funds and themselves by investing in high-end properties and obtaining these so-called golden visas in return. The luxury real estate market is the perfect vehicle for these sorts of transactions because it's very poorly regulated. Real estate brokers don't consider themselves as part of a larger regulatory type of apparatus that, say, guards against money laundering or is required um, to alert authorities of suspicious activities. In fact, what we've seen is that the U.S. National Real Estate Brokers Association uh, has actually managed to secure exemptions from uh, reporting mandated under the Patriot Act. And one of the arguments that they make is that the right to privacy is one of the things that they're offering their clients. Now, we've seen a change over the last year in which FinCEN Department of the U.S. Treasury Department has issued a number of what are called geographic targeting orders, where all cash purchases above a certain luxury threshold, initially in Manhattan, Miami, now expanded to other domains, where um, in those particular cases, at the title insurance uh, signing, uh, those providers would have to ascertain the beneficial owners if purchased via a shell company. But the fact of the matter is that's a particular carve-out. And for many years now, we've seen not only an increase in the ultra-luxury real estate sector, we've seen an increase in the proportion of properties that are purchased by shell companies as opposed to identified individuals, thereby further casting suspicions that a lot of these transactions are being used to either store value, park assets, or perhaps even launder money. For those who may not be familiar with the nuts and bolts, I asked Cooley to walk us through a typical money laundering luxury real estate scheme. Here's what he said. A typical scheme would involve the use of um, an intermediary, uh, such as an accountant, 
or a company service provider to create a series of shell companies, usually nested within each other. Which are legal. Which are legal. And what you want to do um, is nest them within different jurisdictions, right? Have one be in the BVI, then another one, say, um, um, Gibraltar, or another one in the U.S., so that investigators or regulators have to peel back the different layers and even the question of who has jurisdiction in this investigation becomes complicated. And it takes hours and hours. That's right, to unravel. Um, and that's what you saw at the Panama Papers, right? Not just shell companies, but shell companies produced in this industrial fashion, right? Hundreds of them readily available off the shelf. So once you have your different you know, uh, uh, nested shell companies, you then create an LLC that purchases an actual flat, either in the UK or New York, uh, and you can do it directly via a law firm. Mm -hmm. um, right? So you don't even actually have to be the buyer, you can do it via um, a real estate trust uh, that's set up here. So you have multiple layers of protection in terms of um, you know, your anonymity in this whole process. Now, uh, you know, typically what you want to do is have a mix of assets that are hidden and then also partake in highly visible activities um, that promote what a good transnational citizen you are, right? Such as? Um, having a charity, um, buying a sports club, uh, maybe promoting a cultural event, um, having a tie or giving money to sort of established donors and organizations. People have image crafters help them with this. Yeah, that's right. And, and certainly having image crafters, um, fixers, PR consultants, um, all of this is important and sort of you know, serves to cleanse and enhance your public image certainly in the West. So, so it's a delicate balance. On the one hand, you want to camouflage a lot of your transactions. On the other hand, you want to highlight what you're doing, especially on a global level, by associating with what are deemed appropriate and worthy types of activities with your wealth. Following the global financial crisis of 2008, the luxury real estate market boomed like never before. I wondered why in the wake of the greatest financial disaster in modern history, a disaster rooted in a real estate bubble, the global community has not deemed it necessary to impose stricter regulations on the luxury real estate industry. It's a really good question. Um, I think the initial financial crisis um, was al also rooted in a real estate bubble, but it was more a bubble that had to do with the securitization of a mortgage industry. It's disembedding um, and kind of securitization so that the loans were then transferred as financial assets into numerous portfolios, which sort of pumped up the bubble. What we see post-financial crisis um, is a boom in what real estate analysts call the ultra-luxury market. So this isn't the case that people are buying homes that they can't afford. This is a case that we're creating massive bubbles at the very highest end in a lot of these developments. Bubbles in what sense? 
bubbles in the sense that flats that were valued at 10, 15 million dollars are perhaps on the market for 25 and 30. That we're seeing, you know, figures in places like New York and London um, that were, you know, way beyond what we had become accustomed to. And it's a sort of a few possible reasons. One is um, post-commodity boom, we've actually seen a greater increase in the number of global billionaires. Um, and these billionaires are looking for um, assets uh, to park their money is. Um, that has been supported by the kind of quantitative easing of sort of central banks in which investors have started to look for alternative uh, investments. And then another thing that's driven this is that hedge funds and financial institutions themselves have gotten involved in um, financing a lot of these ultra-luxury projects. And so they've gone after this ultra-luxury market because this is the place where they can get their alpha, they can get their potential return. If you have an apartment that was, um, say, in the 15 million range and now it's flipped for sort of 25, whatever it is, that's a much quicker return um, than it would be in an ordinary market, say, even assuming you know, a 10% um, sort of increase year to year. So for all these reasons, we see this new type of bubble. The question is, you know, is it sustainable? And are there limits to this, you know, global billionaires market that seems to have emerged? And what do you think? I think what goes up has to come down eventually. And how would that impact the rest of the world if it came down? Well, I, I'm not sure it would impact so much the world, but it would impact the profiles of certain cities, right? And I think... And that's New York, London, New York, Paris. London, the Côte d'Azur, uh, Toronto is one of those cities, um, L.A. Different geographic areas tend to attract different kinds of customers. So, for instance, in the west coast of Canada and the red-hot Vancouver market, a lot of this is Chinese capital. Um, sort of coming in. Uh, Russians and Eurasian uh, capital tends to go more into the New York and Miami markets. Including into Trump Tower Soho. That's right. So Trump Tower Soho is, is, is something else that's been in the news and probably is going to be uh, on the news. In case you haven't been following this story, Trump Tower Soho is a $450 million 46-story luxury hotel and condominium in Lower Manhattan. It was completed in 2010 and, like most of the Trump Organization's deals, involved no investment whatsoever on the part of the company. Instead, the Trumps profited from licensing the use of the Trump brand and from managing the property. Since the tower's completion, the deal's financing has faced much scrutiny and has been traced to dubious sources in Russia and Kazakhstan. According to a Financial Times investigation published in October 2016, there's strong evidence that the project has multiple ties to an international money laundering network. Reportedly, the deal is now being examined by special counsel Robert Mueller as part of the ongoing Russia investigation. It is yet another glaring example 
of the loose regulatory standards applied to the luxury real estate industry. Will these standards ever be tightened? My sense is if something comes of the Mueller investigation, especially into Trump financing and properties, and there's a report issued on this or you know, some sort of legal recommendation, it may, it may spark um, some sort of regulatory action into this domain because it is you know, such an obvious, obvious gap. You know, but we'll see. Certainly there's a lot more attention to this than, than there was before. But again, it's a quasi-legal domain, right? And I think Trump would say, well, you know, I get a lot of investment. People want to invest in my projects and my buildings. You know, there's no legal requirement to determine or ascertain the actual owner of an LLC that invests or buys one of your apartment. Um, so a lot of this is also about, you know, uh, do we want to promote the norm and the value of transparency? And if we do, you know, how do we go about doing that as opposed to just strictly following, you know, this, these kind of, you know, skeletal legal requirements that we have at the moment? And can you discuss the, the mingling of legal and illegal funds as it pertains to money laundering? Yeah. So I, I think there's somewhat of a misperception that, you know, dirty money or kleptocrats or elites who have engaged in grand corruption, right, the kind of pilfering of state assets and, um, you know, the use of positions of state power for personal profit, that this sort of sector is sort of analogous to an illicit uh, sector like, say, you know, uh, narco-trafficking human trafficking. But the fact of the matter is that in a lot of these cases, these elites, even though they might acquire their wealth um, through illicit or, uh, I would say, in the case of the Eurasian states, quasi-legal means. What do you mean quasi-legal? Well, for instance, that they were well-positioned in insider privatizations, that they wrote the rules that allowed for the transfer of some of these assets from the states to sort of private companies, that they were connected to, say, sovereign wealth funds and whose portfolios some of these things were. In other words, they used their insider status to shape the property rights and the rules of the game. Um, but once you get the wealth, you need to get it out. And why do you need to get it out? You need to get it out because... Um, your position as usually in a Eurasian um, elite is always tenuous. At the back of your mind, just as easily as you have risen to power and oligarch status, it can be taken away from you, right? These things are fragile. We have examples of the state, Mr. Kudarkovsky, for instance, taking away holdings of those who are not in favor anymore. So it's exactly because you're rich and powerful, but this might be precarious, that you want to sort of hedge your options. And real estate holdings are a good way to store value, but also to project yourself into different jurisdictions um, and different sort of domains. And so for that reason, you know, we can't call this purely illegal and you know, it maybe skirts the boundaries of legality, 
But in markets like real estate where things have a subjective value, right, where you say, no, this luxury condo, because it's on Central Park South and it's on the 47th floor, is worth an additional $8 million on the price tag. Um, you know, that market operates in a very different way uh, than some others. And so there's a willingness to pay a premium to have this sort of um, store of, of, of asset value and the institutional protections that come from it in dealing with the legal system in the U.S., in France, in the U.K. That's the other thing that you're getting. When it comes to murky offshore finance and luxury real estate, a fascinating project to look at is the 2011 licensing deal for a Trump Tower in the Georgian port city Batumi. The deal was touted by former Georgian President Mikhail Saakashvili as evidence that he was bringing Western investment into Georgia. In reality, the Trump Organization, as usual, invested no money into the project, but received a million dollars for licensing its brand. The deal was paid for, celebrated with an elaborate ceremony for which Donald Trump traveled to Georgia, and then the tower was never built. Shortly after Trump's election to the U.S. presidency in 2016, he cut all ties to the project. The affair raised red flags for Manuela Andrioni and Inti Pacheco, the two Columbia investigative fellows you'll hear from in the next part of this series. The duo became suspicious when they noticed that the Silk Road Group, the holding company that financed Trump Batumi, had no identifiable owner and a completely illogical organizational structure with layers of shell companies scattered throughout a maze of offshore jurisdictions. Andrioni and Pacheco spent months poring over documents and piecing together various leads until they discovered a connection between the Silk Road Group and a Kazakh bank embroiled in a large-scale money laundering scandal. These findings resulted in Trump's business of corruption, an August 2017 investigative story from New Yorker staff writer Adam Davidson, who will be the final guest in our series. The deal, it turns out, not only raises red flags for bank fraud and money laundering, but also links the Trump Organization to a Kazakh oligarch with close ties to Vladimir Putin. I asked Cooley about the wider implications of these findings. I think what's really fascinating from the perspective of an international relations scholarship is something like the Batumi-Trump Tower situation or scandal or whatever you want to talk about it really challenges us in terms of our understanding of both global governance and geopolitics. That on the face of it, we see a relationship between the government of the U.S. and the government of Georgia that's founded upon mutual values, respect for democracy. You know, there's a certain anti-Russian element to it. Um, in the particular case of Mr. Sort of Saakashvili, sort of, you know, the kind of assertion of sovereignty and independence away from Moscow. But then you go behind the scenes 
to sort of deal makers and brokers, and you realize that a lot of them are positioning themselves as intermediaries and even collaborating on projects. And so I think the sort of vision of Batumi that it could become this kind of regional hub of entertainment and gambling and sort of nightlife mm -hmm. uh, and so forth was very much part of sort of Saakashvili's state building kind of vision that the U.S. wanted to encourage. On the other hand, the kind of dubious and shady characters, the, the kind of, you know, intermediary companies involved and, and fixers to sort of make this happen were probably not the types of actors that the U.S. wanted to be associated with it. So, you know, I think we see kind of two sides of global governance, right? We see sort of the formal official side where we want to encourage norms and transparency and good governance. But then behind the scenes, you see this sort of transnational world of fixers and financiers and oligarchs and their reps um, who are always working in tactical alliances to try and position themselves for, for the next project. And I think the critical part is when the latter, the behind-the-scenes sort of fixers, can graft onto an existing kind of official initiative to say, we're helping to rebuild Georgia, or we're helping, you know, fight the war on terror, or, you know, whatever it is that that official goal is, that you present yourself as being in that kind of high politics interest when really you're extracting personal um, benefit from and it. taking money from your perceived enemies or your, exactly. your public enemies exactly yeah. and that's kind of an unintended consequence of globalization and what's interesting is in your book you talk about Central Asia being portrayed as an isolated region and you argue that it's actually not isolated at all because Central Asian elites are trying to portray themselves and normalize themselves by being these global citizens and they're conducting business and money laundering and extraditions and all over the world. Yeah, yeah, and that's been the case really since um, formative stages of state building. We just didn't see it in the 90s because we just assumed that everyone was transitioning to a model that looked like us, right? And we thought, well, some might transition more slowly than others. Some might be reluctant transitioners and they'll get there, or maybe they'll get there with a regime change. But we assume that the East European, East Central European model, where they would all become Western European, applied everywhere, when it didn't. What you got in Central Asia was the combination of global financial uh, deregulation and legal globalization married with authoritarian regime consolidation. And so what elites learned to do was to use these vehicles and opportunities globally, sort of and sort of shell companies being one, and offshore financial centers, um, accountants, and um, you know these, again, legal sort of practices that were brought on by sort of deregulation and globalization to personally benefit themselves, right? Um, as opposed to you know, expand and consolidate sort of transparent markets in the class. Um, instead, what they used was you know, the international system to sort of siphon off and extraterritorialize the assets of various deals and transactions and insider privatizations. So you had capital flight as opposed to sort of reinvestment 
back in these actual countries. But there's no reason to assume that that's an anomaly. In fact, what now seems exceptional is because they were mandated by European Union, the EU countries had to agree to certain conditions regarding legal reforms and transparency. Um, but maybe you know the Central Asian model is the more natural state of global affairs. So do you think the world is headed in a kleptocratic direction? Well, we're certainly running a test case in many parts of the world, right? And I think a lot of the kind of turn to illiberalism, when you strip away the populist rhetoric, right, and the sort of um, you know, demonization of sort of migrants and liberalism and openness and kind of this sort of also kind of anti-LGBT agenda uh, and so forth. A lot of it is about creating the conditions to once again use office and power for personal profit um, and to sort of uh, make those types of transactions quite opaque, but always put kind of a populist kind of spin on it. We're getting tough, or we're blowing things up, or we're doing deals with you know, China and Russia um, because we deal with everyone. You know, th there's always a justification for it, but I think one thing the, the moment that we're in has taught us is justifications for you know, liberalism and transparency, separation of business and state, they constantly need to be maintained. The case needs to be made for them. Because it's, especially in times of sort of crisis, it's easy to make the case against them, right? That they're slow, that it's just a bunch of elites, a bunch of globalists. And so I think that's our challenge, that in some part we took this system of kind of government and regulations, the existing system, you know, a bit for granted and didn't see its vulnerability to these kinds of illiberal critiques. And the EU is actually a really good example of that because there's conditionality when you have to when you're in the process of entering the EU, but once you're in, there are no mechanisms to prevent. That's exactly it. Once you're in, then we've seen a real reluctance to punish backsliders, say for violations of media freedoms or academic freedoms. Emily Holland, one of our PhD students, did a great dissertation on opacity of domestic energy markets and how in a place like Hungary, we went from transparency post-European integration to less transparency in the current regime. So things can move in multiple directions. It isn't just progress. And I think, you know, the EU, we just assumed, and political scientists assumed for a generation. The golden arches theory? <laughs> yeah, the golden arches theory. And I think, I mean, there were debates, but the debates were more about, well, is it incentives offered by the European Union or is real socialization going on? Right? Are these new countries feeling European and internalizing European values? You know, on the other hand, we do see some good stories, right? So street demonstrations and protests in Romania did quelch an effort to legalize certain forms of low-level corruption. Um, that's good. I actually think we're seeing a backlash against the rise of populism as it becomes clearer what the stakes are in terms of decisions like Brexit or the sort of U.S. withdrawal from the world. Where do you see this backlash coming from? I think the French election's really interesting, right? I think ultimately Le Pen polled uh, much lower mm -hmm. than what a lot of her supporters thought. 
uh, should we get? And instead we got also political unknown, but who seems to be relatively kind of centrist, center-right. Though he's very unpopular. He is very unpopular, true. I think it made the stakes more visible. Um, and in that way, I think, you know, populism is going to be a force for a while, but I also don't think it's this all-conquerate type of movement. I think the sort of accomplishments and damage that populists do while in power are things that need to be documented and sort of shown. Um, in Greece, I think the Syriza government now is quite unpopular after sort of you know, promising a range of things that it really was constrained on and, and, couldn't, and couldn't deliver. So there is, I think, a cyclical uh, trend to this, but it does point out that we can't be complacent. And again, if you value your values, your democracy, your civic associations, your free media, your university freedom, academic freedom, um, then you need to stand up for them. That was Professor Alexander Cooley, Harriman Director and co-author of Dictators Without Borders, Power and Money in Central Asia. If you want to get a deeper understanding of the issues discussed, I highly recommend that you read the book, I also suggest that you listen to Nate Schenken's interview with Cooley's co-author John Heathershaw on the Central Asianist podcast at Eurasianet. In the second part of our three-part series on offshore finance, money laundering, and the Trump Organization's real estate deals in the post-Soviet region, we'll hear from Manuela Andrioni and Inti Pacheco about their investigation of the Trump Tower Batumi deal. Thanks for listening to Expert Opinions on Russia and Eurasia, the Harriman Institute's podcast on Eurasianet. I'm your host, Masha Udenseva-Brenner. This episode was written by me and produced by me with audio editing and production assistance from Sarah Bellingham.